0: Obi-Wan Kenobi pulled a double early release on Disney+, and I've got my thoughts on the first two episodes right now. This review is sponsored by Athletic Greens, the maker of AG1. Check out athleticgreens.com slash Dan for a special offer, and stay tuned to the end of this review for more info. Hello everybody, I'm Dan Merle here with my reviews of part one and part two of the new Disney Plus series Obi-Wan Kenobi which Disney was kind enough to release a little bit early last night so that all of us here on the internet could instead stay up until midnight Pacific time to watch the new season of Stranger Things. So thank you for eliminating that conflict of interest, Disney. I will be recapping both episodes and going into details about both episodes, so I'll give you some basic thoughts on the series so far and then let you know when you should probably tune out to stay away from spoilers. And I mainly enjoyed what we've seen so far. It didn't come blazing out of the gate as this sort of Star Wars savior of the world that I think a lot of people had hoped that it might be, but that is kind of a big burden to put on one TV show. It's a six-episode series. We've seen two episodes, which basically means that we've seen the first act of the story, and there was a lot there for me to like, and I'll get into more specifics there, but in general, I liked the performances, of course, Ewan McGregor. Really, I think the best thing to come out of the prequels, we'll talk a little bit more about the prequels, but I think the thing that most of us can agree on, that little handshake meme in the middle, is that Ewan McGregor was great in that role, and he's great coming back to the role. This is something that he's been rumored for for many, many years, and I like that we're not getting the prequel Obi-Wan. This is set about 10 years after the prequel trilogy, and this is a very downtrodden, world-weary, discouraged character, keeping in mind that everything, his way of life, was ruined. And, you know, we know, because we're Star Wars fans, that the Empire will eventually fall. But Obi-Wan doesn't know that. He figures he's going to live the rest of his life in obscurity. He lost the jedi lost the galaxy is in peril this is not a great time to catch up with this character as far as his own morale but that makes it a great time to catch up with him as far as character growth and development and i think and i hope that's what we're going to get even more of as the season goes on i liked a lot of what i saw in these first two episodes but i think there's even more potential in the next 4 that i hope that this uh, show is able to realize and i think a lot of that depends on where they're going to take this show after these next two episodes i think that we have kind of a logical turning point here and the question is do we continue to go down the road that we're on or do we kind of make a pivot like i said we're at the end of act one Let's get into Act 2. It's hard for me to say a whole lot more about Obi-Wan Kenobi without getting into exactly what happened, so let's go into a full recap and review of Obi-Wan Kenobi Parts 1 and 2. This is the point if you have not seen the episodes for you to jump off until you have, because we're going to be in full spoiler territory from here on. So let's start with part one, which was directed as all six episodes will be by Deborah Chow. And the series started with a pretty exciting recap of the prequels that I actually think was better than the actual prequels themselves. If I'd known, I could have just saved myself the trouble of living through them in real time and just watched that montage because it was very well put together. And it just reminds you that no matter what you think about the movies as a whole, there are some great pieces to those different movies. Brings you up to speed to where we are in the story right now. And we open at the Jedi Temple on Coruscant with the execution of Order 66, which we've seen little snippets of. We saw a little bit of it in Revenge of the Sith and little pieces of it here and there. I loved the scale of this, though. You see the entire temple under fire, all of the Jedi fighting off all of these clone troopers. I think this might be... Correct me, someone can correct me if I'm wrong, but this might be the first time we've seen live-action clone troopers, like actual armor on clone troopers. I know that we've had, you know, clone troopers played by actors before, but as far as like full non-animation armor, it's the first time I remember seeing them in live-action. I'm sure if I'm wrong, somebody will point it out. But the other thing that I really don't understand is with all of the Star Wars stuff that's being spun off, different movies, different shows, etc., How do we not have a Die Hard in the Jedi Temple Star Wars movie yet? a movie that's set during the execution of Order 66. It could be in real time, and it's about uh, a Jedi or a small group of Jedi who are trying to escape the Jedi Temple while the clone troopers are attacking. You could even throw in Darth Vader because we know that he's around there somewhere doing some stuff. You could have the events of Episode 3 happening kind of in the background. I think that would be a great one-off, like a great 90-minute Disney Plus original movie. It doesn't necessarily have to be for theaters, but, but Somebody get Kathleen Kennedy on the phone for me. I'm sure she's very available to take my call. I want that as a Disney Star Wars project, die hard in the Jedi Temple during Order 66. I think that would be a really cool movie. So we go from Order 66 to 10 years later on the sands of Tatooine, the planet where everything important in the Star Wars universe happens, and we catch up with these Inquisitors. And This is a group of people that are hunting Jedi. This is one place where, uh, and, and I've said it before, I'm not up on all of the Star Wars animated shows, so I know that there were characters who were carried over from Star Wars Animation to live action, so I can't really comment on that transition here or the, the pre-existing uh, nature of their characters. You have the Grand Inquisitor, who was played by Rupert Friend, and without commenting on the transition, I can say that he was very inquisitive, which seems like a very important character trait. There's an Inquisitor named the Fifth Brother, who's played by Sung Kang, again, can't comment on the transition from animation, but I think I can say pretty definitively that with Sung Kang on board, he is now this friend franchise's second most prominent Han. And then we have Moses Ingram as Riva, a.k.a. the third sister, who is a Jedi, or at least has some Jedi training, and is obsessed with hunting down Obi-Wan Kenobi specifically. And this is something that I think, I hope that we're going to explore a little bit more. These Jedi-turned-inquisitors. And again, I'm sure people that watch Rebels and all these other shows probably know a little bit more. But I like this idea of the fact that like not all of the Jedi necessarily were killed. Uh, some of them were turned And that's a little pocket of the Star Wars universe that I haven't seen explored, certainly not in live action, that I hope we get to see a little bit more, Uh, and again, hopefully through Reva's character, because I think that she is a great villain character so far, but I would like to see some more complexity. Moses Ingram has done a really good job thus far with Reva, and I'd like to see even more of what she can do. So the Inquisitors don't find the Jedi they're looking for, but they do find a Jedi named Nari, and he's played by a Softie brother. That's Benny Softie. He is one of the co-directing Softy brothers who made Good Time and Uncut Gems. Benny Softie was also in Licorice Pizza, if you're wondering where you saw that face. He's been in several different movies, including Good Time. He was a co-star and co-director of that movie. Nari is there, much like the Inquisitors, to find Obi-Wan Kenobi, and we find Obi-Wan working as, I guess, a butcher, I guess you would call it a butcher, out in the middle of the desert. It's obvious that he's resigned himself, he's kind of become the person that Rey was afraid that she might become in The Force Awakens, uh, to a life of just menial labor on this dusty, meaningless, dirty desert rock. Obi-Wan also lives in a cave, and his only contact is a Jawa named Tika, who I believe, again, particularly in live action, I think this is our first named and also subtitled Jawa. So it makes all the Jawa sounds, but we get to see what they're actually saying underneath. And if this is true, then this is a big step forward for Jawa kind. Obi-Wan has given up the ways of the Jedi, but his past still haunts him, as he has nightmares about the events of the Star Wars prequels, as many people my age do. And we get yet another reminder of his mentorship under Qui-Gon Jinn. And Liam Neeson's going to show up in this thing, right? I mean, he has to. There is no way they'd be reminding us of Qui-Gon Jinn as much as they are if he doesn't pop up in this series at some point. He doesn't show up in this episode. Obi-Wan actually calls out to him a couple of times and he doesn't show up. But if Liam Neeson can take the time or find the time to do six action movies a year, then he can film a Star Wars cameo in his living room. The, The dude can literally wear his bathrobe while doing it. He's gonna show up. He's got to, right? When Obi-Wan's not out in the desert butchering meat, he's also looking in on, some might call it spying on, Luke and his uncle Owen, who's played again by Joel Edgerton. We see this image of Luke that's been in the trailers of him kind of on the top of the little Tatooine hut steering, very reminiscent of his father when he was younger. And after night falls, Obi-Wan drops off a little model. It's very similar to the model ship that Luke is playing with in A New Hope. And and this kind of got me wondering, like, is Obi-Wan the classic of Tatooine like do the kids of Tatooine get toys on Life Day Eve and was this legend started by Obi-Wan dropping off toys at the home of a little Luke Skywalker when he was just a child this could be the beginning of several different legends we just don't quite know what they are yet so Nari finds Obi-Wan who basically tells him to give up any hope of being a Jedi he literally tells him to go out and bury his lightsaber out in the desert turn around go home and try something else The fight is done. We lost. And like I said earlier, I like this change in Obi-Wan because it gives the character something different. We've seen him at two different stages. This is kind of the in-between stage. I do think that it kind of stands out a little bit with what he tells Owen later on, which is that when Luke starts manifesting his Jedi powers that he has to be trained. We talked about this. When the time comes, he must be trained. Like you trained his father? It just seems like if he's completely turned his back on the Jedi, the last thing that he would want to do is train up Anakin Skywalker's son, number one, because what if it happens again? Number two, because what if Anakin Skywalker or the Emperor or somebody finds him here on Tatooine? I'm not going to chalk this up as an issue right now because we have four episodes left, and they may explain why he kind of thinks these two different things, but it did strike me as a little bit curious in these first couple episodes. I'll be intrigued to see what the answer to this is later on. And then we went somewhere that I really did not expect because I don't really follow casting news or casting announcements for these shows. I barely watch the trailers at this point because I like to be surprised. So I did not expect them to bring a young Leia into this show. We jet over to Alderaan, which is certainly the most we've ever seen it, other than just being rocks in A New Hope. Young Leia is already a rebel many years before the rebellion as she runs away from her parents and hides in the woods to go and play, something that would lead to her getting kidnapped later. That's why kids, if you are a young princess on a forest planet, you don't run away from your parents and hide in the woods. It's just a life lesson as old as the galaxy. But Leia gets pulled away from her forest party to attend a boring royal function. We see C-3PO there doing his C-3PO thing. And then we have Leia's snotty cousin. I get like a real Draco Malfoy vibe from this kid. And Leia proves that you don't yet need to have a lightsaber in order to issue some sick burns. You don't need manners when you're talking to a lower life form. Then I guess I don't need manners when I'm talking to you. Jimmy Smiths is back as Bail Organa, and we get some great Leia-Bail Organa bonding moments here. I like that we do see a little bit of this character's life. Again, it's a little pocket of the Star Wars universe that we haven't really seen that much of. But Leia's not on Alderaan for very long because Flea shows up. And I know that Flea, of the Red Hot Chili Peppers... Has a character name I'm sure that I could look up, but with your permission, I'm just going to call him Flea from here on out because I love when he shows up in anything and you never know where he's actually going to show up. So anyway, Flea shows up with a gang of mercenaries who look tough, but are very easily outrun and outmaneuvered by a very small girl. Like The the, the chase scene uh, between Leia and these mercenaries went on far longer than it should have. At one point, it was almost like a slapstick comedy scene. But eventually Leia is kidnapped and it's actually pretty appropriate that Obi-Wan Kenobi was trained by Liam Neeson because the next episode and a half is basically Jedi Taken. The Organas contact Obi-Wan and he tells them to basically find somebody else, but then Bale shows up and just throws Anakin Skywalker in his face. You couldn't save Anakin, but you can save her. So Obi-Wan goes out into the desert, he digs up his lightsaber and Anakin Skywalker's lightsaber and boards a transport to go find Leia, but we find out that it's a trap. Reva actually ordered the kidnapping of Leia in order to draw Obi-Wan Kenobi out of hiding because she knew that Obi-Wan and Bail Organa were close allies in the Clone Wars and that this might bring the Jedi out of hiding, and you know what? She's right. So part one ends there, and we pick up right where we left off in part two, where Obi-Wan arrives at Dayu, the Blade Runner planet, and we got something else that I didn't expect, which is a Tim Ware Morrison cameo, but he's not playing Boba Fett, he's playing a veteran Clone War trooper who's begging for cash, and again, I like the fact that we're visiting these little things, but from a slightly different perspective, because we're in kind of an unplunged era in Star Wars history as as far as live action shows go, I was kind of hoping that Obi-Wan would come back as he was leaving and take this clone trooper back to the sands of Tatooine. There was another surprise in store as well because a young street urchin, I don't really know a better name for it, offers to bring Obi-Wan Kenobi to another Jedi in order to help find Leia, and we get a surprise Kumail Nanjiani, always a delight to see him show up. He plays a fake Jedi scam artist named Haja Estri, but when Obi-Wan pulls a very uncivilized blaster and puts it to his chest, Haja directs him to the second worst hive of scum and villainy, that Obi-Wan will ever visit. I do have to say, it was was fairly obvious that Obi-Wan was somewhat out of practice because for a guy that was trying his best, above all things, to hide the fact that he was a Jedi, he couldn't have looked any more like a Jedi. He had the cloak, he had the hood, he was open carrying a lightsaber. He literally could not have looked more like a Jedi unless he was actually walking around with a name tag that says, I am Obi-Wan Kenobi, the former Jedi. And in the course of his investigation, the trap is sprung and he is captured by Flea and the mercenaries, but he's able to Walter White his way out of the situation by throwing down a vial of spice. From here, Obi-Wan finds Leia and rescues her from her cell, which is going to be a recurring theme in her life, Force users showing up and rescuing her from a jail cell. And it's here that you can tell that one of the main writers for Obi-Wan Kenobi is Joby Harold, who worked as a screenwriter on the John Wick series, because we get a literal John Wick situation. A bulletin is sent out to every bounty hunter on the planet to capture Obi-Wan Kenobi, and now everybody is out to get him, including a dinosaur? I think that's a dinosaur? Obi-Wan tells Leia that his name is Ben, which I guess is why she doesn't know the name Obi-Wan Kenobi in A New Hope. You've got to really do some canon limbo in a lot of these series. But she still gets suspicious of him and runs away, and she's also able to outrun Obi-Wan Kenobi. She has real super speed, this kid. Obi-Wan uses the Force to keep Leia from falling off a building, which convinces her that he actually is a Jedi. And then Haja, who was in it for the profit, but also seems to be pure of heart, gives Obi-Wan and Leia an opportunity to escape the planet and while they're heading for this unmanned ship i liked the moment where leia reminds obi-wan of padme and you kind of see this wistful look come over his face and he he tells her that oh yeah you remind me of somebody that i used to know was your friend a jedi too no she was a leader she died a long time ago It's these kinds of connections that I think are going to make this show really special. And as we go on to the next four episodes, I hope we see a little bit more of these, you know, ties coming together between eras. Reva shows up to stop Obi-Wan after extracting his location from Haja Kylo Ren style. And again, we're showing the fact that Dark Force users do have access to abilities that some may find unnatural. And then she drops the bomb on Obi-Wan, which is that she wants to take him to Lord Vader, who Obi-Wan, apparently had no idea was still alive you didn't know anakin skywalker is alive the Grand Inquisitor does try to stop Raeva from capturing Obi-Wan, but she lightsabers him instead. This does allow Obi-Wan and Leia, though, the time to escape, and Raeva vows to find them anywhere in the galaxy, very General Zod-like. And as Obi-Wan lets the shock sink in that his former student is still alive, we get our first look at Hayden Christensen back as Anakin Skywalker slash Darth Vader, chilling out in that back to tank. Boy, a bath has never looked so uncomfortable. So it looks like the return of Darth Vader is imminent, and I do have a few questions that, again, I'm not going to say this is a problem with the story because we don't know what the story is yet, but it's curious to me that the name of Darth Vader would not have been more known across the galaxy over the last decade because we know that by the time we get to the original trilogy, Darth Vader is a very infamous figure uh, throughout the galaxy. And so the fact that Obi-Wan Kenobi hadn't even heard Darth Vader's name, that to me says that Vader's legend is still growing. And again, I think that this is an interesting place to take it. What was Darth Vader like between the times that we've seen him in live action? And again, I'm not really including the animation here, but between the prequel trilogy and the original trilogy what was going on with him what was his relationship to the emperor what was his relationship to the galaxy was he still a well-kept secret that was ready to be deployed like a sith weapon I was also somewhat surprised that Leia was brought into this. I think it's a great inciting incident, but I honestly think that the Leia kidnapping story, for me, has kind of run its course. I think if you were to protract it anymore at this point, it would just kind of be like belaboring the point. It gets Obi-Wan off of Tatooine, it brings him into the bigger galaxy, it gets the name Darth Vader in its ears, and, you know, let's go from there. The performances all around are pretty solid. Ewan McGregor, as I mentioned, is great as Obi-Wan. I hope they give him more of these contemplative moments and allow the show to slow down as he's pulled back into this world that he left behind. The supporting cast, as it is, is pretty strong. I wonder how many others besides Moses Ingram are going to be what you would call regulars or if Obi-Wan's going to kind of meet a bunch of new faces as he goes. It was really fun to see Flea and Kumail Nanjiani pop up in these first couple episodes. It kind of leaves you guessing as to who might be next down the line. And then we've got the returning faces, Joel Edgerton, Jimmy Smits, the little bit of Hayden Christensen that we got. I feel like this is kind of a redemptive moment for Hayden Christensen. And, you know, the prequels, we've gotten to a point, they're 20 plus years old now, almost 25 years old if you go back to episode one. And they basically belong to two different generations who I think have two very vastly different outlooks on them. Because the people that are one step below me, those are the Star Wars movies that they grew up on. And so they have a nostalgia for those movies like I have a nostalgia for the original trilogy and I think that a lot of folks are much more positive on those prequel movies than, than folks that my age are and that's fine. But the one thing that I will say and and, and I will say that, that, that my ilk, my brethren uh, myself included were generally unfair about uh, was Hayden Christensen. I feel like this is a redemption moment for him and it's not necessarily a redemption that he needs. It's a redemption that he deserves because I think a lot of people, especially When the movie first came out, and I was one of them, dumped a lot of things on Hayden Christensen that weren't his fault screenwriting issues, directing issues, etc. So I am very much looking forward to, and I'm rooting for. The Darth Vader material in this show because I want that to be Hayden Christensen's legacy. I want him to get that second shot at the character, and I want the fan reaction from everybody, my folks, the second generation, the third generation, whatever, to be positive because I think he does deserve that, and I think he's earned that. And and I've been an advocate for him as an actor. Uh, He's been great in several movies. I think it's just that he wasn't particularly great in the prequel movies for reasons that weren't always under his control. So I'm rooting for him, I'm rooting for the Darth Vader material in the show, and I'm looking forward to see where they take it. Overall, I think this is a really solid start for the show. I think that we are about to take a turn very much into the Obi-Wan Vader material, which could well be the bulk of the next four episodes. And, you know, like I said, you have to play a little bit of canon limbo to try to make sure that everybody's in their positions. You're not contradicting previous movies, but really... If you come up with a great confrontation between Darth Vader and Obi-Wan Kenobi here in a way that continues the heartbreaking goodbye, farewell scene from Revenge of the Sith, then as a Star Wars fan personally, I'll be okay with a few rough canonical edges if it gets us some great scenes. So overall, with Obi-Wan Kenobi, I think we have a solid Act 1 with a lot of stuff to grow on. But what did you think? Let me know down in the comments section below. I'll be covering this show weekly here on the channel, so look for uploads the morning after, usually episode comes out unless there's some sort of a delay. I'm excited to cover the rest of these shows as well as the other Disney Plus shows that are coming out. I mean there's really very few gaps at this point. Thank you so much for watching. Before I go I want to thank the sponsor for today's review, Athletic Greens, the makers of AG1. You've been hearing about AG1 on the show for quite some time now and I started taking it because I'm looking to support better gut health this year and an overall better me. But what is this stuff? Well with one delicious scoop of ag1 you're absorbing 75 high quality vitamins minerals whole food source superfoods probiotics and adaptogens to help you start your day right and taking ag1 is super simple i can either put a scoop right into a cup of water or mix it into a shake that i'm making at home either way it's a quick and tasty way for me to start the day off right and make sure i'm supporting not only my gut health but my immune system my recovery and focus and so much more AG1 is lifestyle-friendly and contains less than one gram of sugar with no GMOs or artificial anything. And if you don't take a multivitamin or have been trying to figure out which one to take, AG1 is also a great choice because it is full of high-quality ingredients that your body will actually absorb. And right now, it's time to reclaim your health and arm your immune system with convenient daily nutrition. And to make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and... 5 free travel packs with your first purchase all you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com/dan Again, that is athleticgreens.com Dan, D-A-N, to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. Thanks to Athletic Greens for sponsoring the review and thank you for watching. I'll be back this weekend with a review of Season 4, Part 1 of Stranger Things. I'm going to go sleep a little bit and then watch the rest of that and then tape some more and then upload some more and then we just watch and rinse and repeat. It's a fun cycle that we do here. Thanks so much for watching. Stay safe.